Well, good morning, everyone. I want to begin uh, just uh, by saying thank you for last week. It was a wonderful, wonderful day uh, for Dana and for me as we uh, got to kind of think back um, and remember about God's goodness to us uh, for 20 uh, whole years uh, here at Southwinds. And uh, I'm grateful and I'm excited to be starting uh, year 21. And so you'll want to get your Bibles open uh, with us today, uh, either uh, in your lap there in a paper form, or if you're turning your Bible on, get that ready, because we are going to continue the journey we began last week through Romans, this magnificent letter that the Apostle Paul wrote that has been changing lives uh, for 2,000 years. And I told you last week that we're going to be studying Romans together uh, for probably about a year. Uh, Maybe you know that Romans has 16 chapters. You probably don't know because I didn't know until I actually looked it up that it has 433 verses. And so last week we made it through one verse. That means only 432 to go. Uh, But today we're going to cover seven, and I promise you we're going to be picking up the pace. And what we're going to do this morning is is look at the rest of Paul's introduction to this letter, which really sets the stage for everything that follows. And maybe you noticed that verse one ends with a phrase, and it's a phrase that stands over everything that follows in the rest of Romans. It's the phrase, the gospel of God. That is the title uh, that I've given to our study this series because that is the theme of the book of Romans. God has a gospel, or as we're going to say it today, God has good news. God has good news, and what Paul is doing in this introduction is he is starting, he's beginning to unpack the good news. And uh, Paul's introduction in Romans is the longest of any of his letters, really by far, And we're going to see as we get into it some important reasons why. But I want to start right now by reading these opening words. This is the word of the Lord for us today, Southwinds. Receive it as such. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, I I told you last week that we're studying Romans together because it's been this way for 2,000 years when people read this letter and study this letter and memorize it and meditate on it. 
big things happen. God does incredible things. And, and that's what really I am praying God will do, that God will do big things, that he'll do big things in your life, in my life, in the life of our church. And, and so last week, as you'll remember, we looked at verse one and we focused on the who. We focused on some things about who Paul is and we were asking the questions, who are you and why are you? And we saw that Paul understood his identity and his purpose, um, how he understood those things, and, and we were learning from him about our own identity, our own purpose. And what we saw, if you could put it this way, is that we were, we were created for relationship and partnership. We were created for relationship to God. We belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. But we also have a partnership with God as his purpose for this world becomes our purpose and our mission. And, and I just want to remind you of this. We, we saw that we must know who we are. And if we don't know whose we are, we're never going to know who we are. And it's only when we know whose we are and therefore who we are that we can know why we are. That's what Paul was telling us and what we saw last week. And today we're kind of moving from the who to the why and the what. We're gonna be uh, talking some about this week about why Paul is writing this letter. We're gonna get more of that next week. And we're gonna be talking about what this letter is about. And I wanna point something out to you that's very important to know. Uh, Paul wrote most of his letters to churches that he had started personally. He would, if you read Acts, you'll see this, he would go into a city. He would usually start at a synagogue and preach there. He would always get kicked out of the synagogue, pretty much. That pretty much always happened. And then he would go somewhere else where people would listen and he would preach there. And, and as he preached, people would believe in Jesus and people would get baptized and Paul would form a church and he would keep teaching and he would raise up leaders and then he'd move on and he'd go do it all over again. And after some time after he had moved on, he would write those churches that he had planted personally letters. That's where we get the New Testament letters. But in this case, Paul did not start the church in Rome. He has authority to speak to this church because he's an apostle. Uh, he is someone who saw the risen Christ. He's someone who is commissioned by Jesus, given authority. And so he has the right as an apostle to speak into the doctrine and the life of the church. And that's what he's doing in Romans. But he is conscious, he's aware that he doesn't know them and that they don't know him. Now we're gonna find out next week, you can find out ahead of time if you want, just keep reading in chapter one, starting in verse eight, um, that, that Paul has wanted to visit Rome and these Christians for some times uh, because he wanted to partner with them. He, he, he wanted to become a partner with them so they would help him take the gospel to Spain, which is uh, kind of was the uh, end of the known world at this time. But Paul was gonna need their help and he realizes if he's gonna get their help, they need to know more about him. They don't know him, and they need to know more. And you're gonna understand Romans better if you keep in mind what is evident as you read the book that these people have some suspicions about Paul. They've heard some things about him. They wonder if they really believe that what he teaches is the truth. They, they wonder who he, he really is. And so what he's doing in this letter is he's writing it to them to gain their confidence 
And he's doing that by proclaiming to them the gospel that he preaches around the world, a gospel for all peoples. And what he starts doing right here at the very beginning is he unpacks this gospel in a much more full way than he typically does in his other letters. So that's what we're going to be seeing today. Uh, God's good news. Paul is beginning to unpack the meaning of the gospel, defining what it means, describing how it, it changes the way we live. And, and I want to say this. Um, I think everyone knows that Romans is this incredibly rich and incredibly profound uh, theological document. I think everybody knows that, and a lot of us are intimidated by that. You also need to understand that Romans is at the same time intensely practical. Never forget Romans is a letter. Never forget that Paul wrote Romans not to a bunch of guys sitting around, you know, um, an academic faculty lounge, all with PhDs. Paul wrote this letter to regular people a lot of whom, quite honestly, in that day, probably couldn't even read. And so this letter is written to people just like us. However intelligent or not you may be, uh, you can insert a Raiders fan joke in there if you'd like. Um, <laughs> Romans is written for you. It's written for me. It's written for all of us, wherever we are. And so don't be intimidated. In fact, this isn't in my notes. I just remembered this to, to share with you. Again, I mentioned it probably a few times along the way. But there's a place um, in the second letter that Peter writes. I don't have the reference in my head. Uh, I'm still working on memorizing the whole Bible, okay? Um, but where Peter, the apostle, says, well, you know, the apostle Paul, he writes some stuff that's kind of hard to understand, so if you ever find yourself saying, I don't understand what Paul is saying, you can go, you and me, Peter, we're in this together, okay? And so there are gonna be some things that are complex and difficult and hard to understand, but it's always, always, always aimed at real life, practical change in our lives. And it all starts with the gospel, with understanding the gospel. So that's what Romans is all about. It's all about the gospel. What do we learn uh, about the gospel in these first seven verses? I want us to work our way through uh, these verses, verse by verse. And the first thing I want you to write down is just kind of a reiteration of the title, but it's so important to get it in there. The gospel is God's good news. Verse one again says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And last week we covered most of that verse, but we didn't spend very much time uh, on the gospel of God. And that's where I want to launch today. Here's what we learn about the gospel. The very first thing, it is the gospel of God. It is the gospel of God. You need to underline that. You need to circle that, bold face it, whatever you do, so that you see the emphasis. The gospel is from God. It is God's gospel. And you're going to see as you read Romans and study it that, it, that Romans is this God-centered, God-saturated book. Uh, Paul uses the word for God 151 times in these 16 chapters. Romans is about God. And this kind of crest, the mountain peak of this, uh, is the doxology that we see at the end of Romans 11. It's a Romans 11:36, probably the the high point of the doctrinal teaching of this book. And Paul says, for from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To him be glory forever. In other words, God is what the gospel is all about. It's the gospel of God. And this gospel is for, its purpose is, for the glory of God. Now, here's a little bit of what that means. The gospel is not the invention of people. We didn't dream it up. And I don't care what the Da Vinci Code says, okay? (laughs) It's not like what the Da Vinci Code claims, uh, without historical evidence, by the way, that a group of men, you know, gathered like in a church basement somewhere, and they just made this gospel up so they could control people. The church did not create the gospel. The gospel created the church. The gospel is not an invention of men. It is the revelation of God. And that means, further, we must not edit it. We don't get to adjust it. Our job is just to proclaim it, the gospel of God. It is God's good news. And literally, that's what gospel means. It's good to remind ourselves, this was not a religious word. This was a secular word. It just meant good news. And in Paul's day, Paul wanted to be clear about this. It's just good news. It's an announcement that he is talking about. He wants you to know that he is bringing news that is good. Don't we all love to hear good news? Couldn't we all use some good news today in this world in which we live? I want to tell you, no good news is as good as this good news. This is the good news. It is God's good news. It is God's news of hope for a world that is shattered by sin and by death. God revealed it. We did not make it up. The church didn't create it. It created the church. And so that means for us, when we share it, when we preach it, when we talk about it, we are not telling other people our truth. We are not sharing with other people our opinion we are, we are not saying to someone, well, this is kind of how I, I, I see things. We are saying this is God's message. This is God's message. It is the, the capital T truth. It is God's good news. And it is because of that that this gospel has power and authority. It is because of this that this gospel is the only hope for mankind. It is the only cure for the human dilemma. It is God's good news. And I want to encourage you in your life to live in that confidence and live in that faith. It is true and it is good and it's for you. That's the first thing, the gospel. It's God's good news, his message to us. Second thing that Paul tells us is that the gospel has always been God's plan. In other words, this is not plan B. Notice what he says in verse two about the gospel. It says, which he or God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, God planned this gospel long ago. God revealed the gospel to the prophets. The prophets wrote the gospel down in the Holy Scriptures. So this is God's plan. It's his purpose. It's not saying that he predicted it like he kind of knew this was gonna happen. He promised it. That means it was his idea and that he was gonna make it happen. And God always keeps his promises. That's why the Bible says God cannot lie. What this means is that as you read through the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, you are going to see if you read correctly that these Old Testament scriptures, they point to and promise and they picture and they prophesy the gospel of Jesus. 
Jesus himself said this. This is John 5, 39. He said to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about what? Me. Jesus is saying the whole point of the Old Testament is me. It's about Jesus. You can read the Old Testament all you want. You can study it. You can memorize it. You can, you can meditate on it. But if you miss Jesus and if you miss his gospel, you're going to miss the whole point of the Bible. You, you can go to the end of the gospel of Luke and see uh, what Jesus said to his disciples. This is Luke 24. This is after his resurrection. Uh, Jesus kind of has a, a like 40-day Bible study with his disciples. You know, when I think about different parts of history that I'd like to like time travel back to, this would be at the top of the list. Can you imagine being in a Bible study with Jesus that he's leading? It's like, it's way better than, than this here. <laughs> way better. But notice Luke 24, verse 44. Then he, or Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You see, Jesus there, he mentions what that Hebrew scholars understood to be the three sections of the Old Testament, those categories. That's how they understood the the Old Testament organizing, what, what he is saying is it's the whole Old Testament. It's all about me. The next verse, verse 45 says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, you can read the Old Testament all day long, but until Jesus opens your mind, you'll never understand what it's really all about. You need to pray for that. Verse 46, he says next, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer it is written, so it's in the Old Testament. Don't miss that. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus is just saying, it's all about me. You read the Old Testament. Here's what you're gonna learn. The Messiah, that's me, gonna come, gonna die, gonna rise from the dead on the third day. And after that, forgiveness of sins. Through my death and my resurrection is to be preached to all nations in my name. And he says, every section of the Old Testament preaches that to us. It all points to that. It all depicts and pictures that. It all prophesies and promises that it's all about Jesus, all about his gospel. Now, maybe you know this, but scholars tell us that there are uh, around 300 very specific predictions prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled uniquely by Jesus. And those prophecies are just a reminder of what I'm, what I'm telling you. It is all about Jesus. There is a um, scholar, theologian, professor named Ed Clowney, uh, used to teach at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. He's written several books, uh, particularly on the subject of Christ in the Old Testament. And he made an interesting analogy. I think it will connect with a lot of you. Uh, he said, you have to read the Old Testament uh, like you're watching the movie The Sixth Sense for the second time. You know what I'm talking about? If you haven't said, seen the movie, well, I'm gonna ruin it for you right now, but it's 20 years old, too bad. <laughs> Not my problem. 
But in this movie, if you don't know, you, you find out in the like, climactic scene that Bruce Willis's character has been what? Dead. The whole movie. If you go back and you watch it again, it's like, oh, ah. You, you, you see it in a whole different way. The lights start to come on. There's a comedian named Nate Bergasi who said, this is the biggest surprise of our entire generation. He's been dead the whole time. He said, I just thought his wife wasn't talking to him for a, for a year. That seemed a lot more <laughs> realistic <laughs> than the guy just being dead. But it's, it's this, this culmination where you have this aha moment that make all the other scenes clear to you. It's the same way when you read the Bible. You see, the, the culminating scene of Christ, crucified and dead, risen from the dead, exalted to heaven, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, that helps you to understand all of the other stories in the Bible that are pointing to him. You know, a lot of times, a lot of us read the Old Testament for like moral lessons. We look at somebody and say, well, I should live like that. That's not really the way Jesus tells us to read the Old Testament. See, it's not just that Noah survived the flood. It's that God provided a safe place that if you would enter into it, you would survive the flood of God's judgment. We're to learn that. And that Jesus is the truer and better ark that we hide ourselves in to be safe from the wrath of God. Or, or you just read about all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and, and goats that can never take away sins. So the, those sacrifices are pointing to Jesus. That's why John said, John the Baptist said, behold, uh, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then Jonah. Is, is that a story about a whale or just a whale of a story? Well, Jonah shows us that there is a truer and better Jonah, Jesus, who actually obeys God, who actually was in the depths of the earth for three days and who comes back alive. And through his proclamation of the good news, the world is being saved. And we just go on and on with that. The gospel has always been God's plan. And so Paul is preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. Never think that the gospel is something innovative. It's not new, Paul says. It's ancient. It's not like some Hail Mary pass. You know, it's always been God's plan, his promise, and God cannot lie, and God always keeps his word. Number three, the gospel is Jesus. Paul writes in verse three that the gospel is concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's really in these two verses that we just see the gospel. And it's this, Jesus is God's eternal son who from all eternity was in a face-to-face -face relationship with the father fully God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, but at a point in time by the will of the Father, Jesus was born on our planet, fully man. And he was a descendant of David, fully human. He is part of King David's line that the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah, uh, the Savior of the world, would come from. And he is born and he lives fully man, his life in the flesh and 
He experiences that life in human weakness. And this just means our human limitations. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Paul is just laying it out for us here that God the Son was a real human being who lived a really, truly human life, just like us, and he lived it to the point of death. And in the rest of Romans, what Paul's gonna do is tell us about that death, what it means that Jesus died in the place of sinners for us and for our salvation. And and so we see this son, the eternal son in human flesh and human weakness, and he dies, and verse four says he's raised from the dead. He's declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection, Now, this does not mean that Jesus wasn't the son of God until the resurrection. That's that's a heresy. It's known as adoptionism. It simply means that his human life, in his human life, he was the son of God in weakness, the son of God in frailty, the son of God with human limitations. And Paul says he was crucified and he was buried. He actually doesn't say that right here, but it's implied because you have to die if you're gonna be raised. Does that make sense? (laughs) So he's implying the cross here. He, he, he was crucified, buried, but then he's raised and he's declared. He's, he's declared uh, not to just be the son of God in weakness, but now he is the son of God in power and authority. And in verse four, Paul says, this was according to the spirit of holiness. Now this is speaking uh, most likely of the Holy Spirit. This is a phrase that only occurs one time in the New Testament right here Uh, Most scholars believe it's just a direct reference to the Holy Spirit, saying that the Holy Spirit was the agent of Jesus' resurrection. The Holy Spirit said, Jesus, time to get up. And he did. He came back to life. And so we're also seeing, you need to remember from the very beginning how important uh, the resurrection is. Paul cannot even get through the greeting of this letter without talking about the resurrection. In other words, there's no gospel. There's no good news apart from the resurrection. And and this is such good news. Let me just stop here for a minute and and say a couple things. Jesus has conquered our greatest enemy. Amen? See, our greatest enemy, we get confused sometimes. Our greatest enemy is not China. Our greatest enemy is not COVID. Our, Our greatest enemy is not our political opponents. Whichever side that would be for you. Our our greatest enemy is not anything else. Our greatest, our ultimate enemy is death. How will you beat death? That's kind of like trying to beat LeBron James one-on-one. It ain't gonna happen, right? Only it's like an infinite time, infinitely worse than that. You cannot defeat this opponent, but Jesus has. And in him, we have victory. See, Jesus is, he's the subject of uh, of this greeting. He is the gospel. And Paul is just showing us from the very beginning of Romans how awesome Jesus is. And I am praying that this study will increase your affections for Jesus, that it will make you love Jesus more. You know, the, the order of our loves, what we love, determines the direction of our life. I don't know if you ever think about it like this, but we all have a lot of loves, all of us do. It is the order of those, how we prioritize those that determines the direction of your life. You do what you do because of what you love. That's why 
That's why you do that sin. And I know part of you hates it, but if you keep doing it, it's because of what you love and there needs to be a reordering, a renewal of your loves. And, and, and that, that, that's what we need to do. We, we need to grow in love for the right thing. And what Paul is gonna show us throughout this letter is the way that we grow to love Christ more is to see him, to see his beauty, to see his truth, to, to see him in his word. And as we understand him more deeply as he truly is, we're gonna love him more richly because we can't help it because he's beautiful. He is lovable. And so we need to grow in our love for Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing here by unfolding God's gospel, this good news that the eternal son of God, a God in the flesh, God incarnate coming to this planet to die for our sins and for our salvation and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and rule and reign at the right hand of God, pouring out his Holy Spirit on all who would believe in him. When we see him, we cannot help but love him. And so I just wanna say it again. The gospel is a person. Do not reduce it down to facts, information, just you know, objective truths you have to believe. It is objective, it is true, as I've already said, but the gospel is a person. It's not a philosophy. The gospel is not a moral code. It's not some product you, know, you gotta pay for. And the gospel is certainly not a political affiliation like many people are beginning to seem to think today. It's a person, and that person, his name is Jesus. Just keep meditating on that. The gospel is the embrace of a person. It is delight in a person. It is intimacy with a person. It's surrender to a person. It is love for a person, a person who first loved us and gave himself up for us. The gospel is a person. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the greatest person who's ever lived. The gospel is a person. You know, I was thinking about something I, I wanted to kind of share with you as a word of encouragement for some of you when you think about this because there are some of you, and you've told me this over the years, that you struggle because you can't remember when you became a person. A Christian. Sorry about that. You can't remember when you became a Christian. And, and a lot of you grew up kind of like I did. You grew up in an environment where you're told, you know, sometimes by people like me standing in a place like this, that, you know, if you don't know the date and if you don't know the time and if you don't know the place that you came to know Christ, then you don't know him. You're not saved. You know, and so you gotta be able to say, a lot of people teach, you know, on this day I prayed a sinner's prayer. On this day, like I walked an aisle. On this day I became a Christian. And, and maybe you think like this and it's like, I don't remember the date or time or the place. I don't really remember an experience. And so that, does that mean I don't really know Jesus? I just don't know. Is that where I am? Am I really a Christian? Because you can't remember let me share uh, an illustration uh, with you. I have a best friend from college whose name is Brent. He lives in Florida. We have known each other for over 40 years. I actually helped officiate at his wedding 40 years ago, this New Year's Day. 
and we still keep in touch. We're still really good friends, though we've been separated, you know, mostly living our lives thousands and thousands of miles apart from each other. But here's the truth. I don't remember when we met. I have no idea. I, I don't remember what we did those first few times we started hanging out. But if you ask me, do you know Brent? I'm not gonna say, well, I don't know if I know Brent. I mean, how could I say I know him for sure because I don't remember when we first met. Here's what I wanna say to you. If you have been taught by people that you gotta know the time and the place, the Bible never says that anywhere. Go look it up. The Bible never commands that. Um, I actually, for myself in my life, happen to know that time, that place, but the Bible never says that. And so if you don't, it doesn't matter. What really matters is this. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you trusting Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus today? Do you have a friendship with Jesus? See, Christianity is about a person because the gospel is a person. It's not about praying a prayer or walking an aisle or, or signing a card or join, joining a church you know, by taking a membership class, though you should come to that. It's not about getting baptized, though you should get baptized. Jesus commands that. But that's not, how, that's not what the gospel is about. It's about a person. Do you know him? And when you understand this, it's so beautiful. Think about this. A child cannot be a scholar. A child cannot be a philosopher. A child cannot be like a, a mystic or articulate a particular worldview. But a child can know a person and trust a person and hug a person and embrace a person. The gospel is for everyone, from the simplest to the most complex among us. The gospel is a person. That's what Paul is telling us, what he's gonna keep on telling us. So the question really for you is, do you know him? Do you know him? Number four, uh, we see that the gospel demands that everyone respond. See, this gospel is good news. It's good news that offers us a person, Jesus Christ, but that offer demands a response. It demands a response from everyone who hears. Look at verse five. It's, Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, there's so much here and so little time. Uh, we're just gonna have to keep unfolding what Paul is saying here throughout the letter. But what is the gospel offering to us that demands our response? And I wanna point out two things, two ways we respond. First of all, we respond to grace because grace is offered. When we are called and we respond in faith, Paul is saying that we receive grace. He received this grace to know Jesus and we receive it as well, the forgiveness of sins. And this is the good news. Something has been done for us so that the holy God of the universe can have a relationship with us. Jesus died and rose again so our sins could be forgiven. But I wanna stop here and just say a little bit about what we'll get more into as we keep going. I want you to just think about how amazing this grace really is because a lot of times we think the gospel is just about our sins being forgiven. And, and I want you to understand something. If all we have is forgiveness, nothing more, 
If all we have is forgiveness, that means our past is wiped clean, but it also means from this point forward, it's all up to us. And that's not very good news, amen? It's like God would be saying, I'm not gonna hold your past against you, but now you better get it right. And the sad thing is a lot of people think that's what Christianity is, but it's not. See, the the salvation of the gospel is past forgiveness, but that includes also the perfect status of Jesus being given to us forever. John Stott, in his commentary, uh, wrote an illustration that I've adapted. I wanna share it with you. It's kind of like two inmates being released from prison, and this will illustrate the difference I'm talking about. Inmate number one is released from a death row sentence where all charges have been dropped. And when he is discharged from prison, he's given the personal items that he had when he entered. He is told the rules for how he's got to check in with his parole officer. He's told what's going to happen to him if he doesn't follow the rules. He is free from his past action, but his present and future is all dependent on his actions from that point forward. That's inmate number one. Inmate number two is released also from a death row sentence. All charges also have been dropped, but as he is being discharged from the prison, he is given a new name, new social security card, new passport. He's given a a, a new social security number, a, a new identity, and with this new identity that he's given, he gets a checking account with $10 million dollars. He also is handed diplomas, an undergraduate degree from Harvard and an MBA from Stanford. He's given a medal of honor from the military. He's given a secure job with a healthy salary. He's given a home, mortgage is already paid off, and he's got a Tesla to drive away from the prison. So quick question, which inmate would you rather be? See, someone else earned all of that but they gave it to inmate number two. That's the gospel. That's good news. And here's what the gospel is telling us. Because of the actions of Jesus, your past is forgiven and your present and your future are secure in Jesus' goodness and righteousness for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we're not perfect. We still sin. You want to say amen for the person sitting next to you about that one? Right? We still sin. But we receive everything that Jesus earned. All his benefits accrue to us. So it's grace. It's, it's not just forgiveness from our past, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're going to talk a lot about what that means as we work through, through Romans. The righteousness from God is given to anyone who places their faith in Jesus. So Paul says, I got that. And he said, I also became an apostle. And I want you to notice What he sees his mission as an apostle is to proclaim to all the nations, to people everywhere, it's a very interesting phrase, the obedience of faith. And this applies directly to all of us. And I wanna put it this way, obedience is required. Grace is offered, but obedience is required. 
This means that God's gracious offer comes with a command that you must respond to. God is calling you to do something in response to the gospel. What's he calling you to do? Obey. And what does it mean to obey? Well, first of all, it means to believe the gospel. You just trust that it's true. You believe. That's part of obedience. But it means beyond that, there is an obedience that flows out of your faith. See, sometimes some of us think that following Jesus is more about kind of getting a, you know, get out of hell free card. I just don't have to go to hell and I kind of do whatever I want here on earth. If you think you have a get out of hell free card, I hate to tell you, you're probably gonna end up there if that's all you think it is. This is the obedience of faith. This means obedience that flows from faith. We believe in Jesus, and obedience is the fruit of our faith. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Paul's talking about real faith. Real faith is always an obedient faith. Doesn't mean, again, we're perfect, but we're obedient. We're striving to obey what Jesus tells us to do, and it's all done for the glory of his name. So the good news, the gospel demands a response. Here's the last thing I wanna show you. The gospel is God's gracious gift to us. Now, Paul makes it really clear at the end of this this introduction that to, to the Romans, how uh, they fit into this, this grand, grand story uh, that he is, he is telling them. He, he tells them in verses six and seven, he writes this, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just a formality in a letter. Paul is telling us God's good news and it, it changes everything for us today. Again, I told you last week, I'm really telling you again, Paul tells us who we are and he tells us why we're here, what we're for. He's hinting in these, ver- these last two verses at some of the things that we're gonna go into deeper uh, on, but I, I just want to mention before we close, they're so important. First, that phrase, belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. You should just sit on that for a while and think about it, and it ought to make you happy. It ought to make you smile. You can walk out of this place. In fact, I, I want you to do that. Tell someone before you leave, I belong to Jesus. Just let them know that you're, you're kind of getting it. We're his. Paul says, you belong to Jesus. And this is so very, so very important. I just want to ask this question because I know across this room it applies to so many. How many of us have always felt for all of our lives that we never belong. We've always wanted to belong. We're always looking to belong. We never feel like we really belong. And how many of us have damaged our lives trying to belong. You don't have to do that. You don't have to feel that. You belong to Jesus. Paul says, Christ Jesus has made us his own. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. It's getting better. You are loved by God. 
Paul says to all those in Rome who are loved by God. What a beautiful thing to say to someone. Can I, can I just say to you, Southwinds, you are loved by God. You're loved by God. Do you know that? Are you living in that? It's the truth. This is what God's word says. He's telling us our identity, who we are, and we should live in that. We should rest in that. He's later on gonna unpack the the, um, doctrine of adoption in Romans chapter eight, that we're all God's children. And it's such a beautiful truth that we need to live in. I heard from someone recently, they were at a foster care training and at this training there were some kids that were there um, and there were these two kids talking and one was an 11 year old boy asked another child at the table where they were sitting, you know, he asked, how can I be adopted? And, and I learned that this boy, this 11 year old boy had been in and out of the foster care system his entire life. And he told the other child, that being adopted would just be a dream come true. We are loved by God, and we have been adopted. It is a dream come true, and this reality for us should make God's love in us spill out to other people in our worlds, amen? That we should tell them that they can be adopted as well. And then Paul says we are saints, saints, That's what we are. Some of you don't want to say that, but that's what God says about you. Um, And it's not because, you know, we are good. It's not because we merit sainthood, as is taught in some systems. It's not because we have done something awesome. We haven't done anything awesome. We're saints because we're in someone who has done something awesome. Jesus, we are in him. We're gonna talk more about that. And then out of all of that, Paul speaks grace and peace to us. It's grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a gracious gift. What a gracious gift that God gives us in the gospel. Amen? Amen. So let me ask you. Let me ask you as we close today. How are you responding to this gracious gift? Are you living in the obedience of faith? See, the Christian life is a life of obedience to Jesus. It's, it's born out of trust in Jesus. And I hope you see, we, we, we don't obey Jesus because we're terrified of what he'll do to us if we don't. We obey Jesus because we trust him, because of what he's already done. We want to obey and we know he loves us. And so I just wanna close I want to ask you a question. What is Jesus asking you today to do that you're hesitant to do? That you kind of don't really want to do? What is he asking you to do today? Maybe it's forgiving someone who's hurt you and you don't want to do it. You've been harboring some resentment, but he's saying, forgive them. Maybe it's ending a romantic relationship that you know is not in Jesus' heart for you, 
And you know that. You know that. Maybe it's getting off social media. I mean, I know I'm really starting to meddle right now. Maybe it's expanding your generosity. He's told you to do that. You know he's told you, and you don't want to do it. Maybe it's getting baptized. You can obey him next week if that's what he's telling you to do. What, what is Jesus telling you to do that you're hesitant to do? I want you to be reminded of the gospel, this gracious gift that God offers to you that calls for a response. It calls for a response to receive it in the first place, but it calls for response all through our lives as we walk with Jesus. It's the gospel of God. It is God's good news. This is good news for us today. And all God's people say, amen. 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 Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, we want to say thank you for your gospel, this glorious good news that is our only hope, our only hope in life and death. And so, Father, we ask you to give us the grace to believe it. We ask you to give us the grace to obey it, to live for you, because we are growing, Father, to love you through your son, Jesus Christ, more and more every day. Lord, I pray especially for anyone who's here this morning who has never entered into a personal relationship with you. Father, we, we just pray that you would grant repentance to turn from sin and faith to believe in Jesus so that new life would begin, eternal life, that the gospel would be received. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say.